0: Today's episode is a crossover episode with Real Trending and features an interview with CoreLogic's Executive of Public Policy and Industry Relations, Pete Carroll. During the episode, Carroll discusses the housing shortage and other issues in the real estate industry. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor.
1: TMS helps grow business for your customers, allowing you to do what you do best, continuing to build a business with raving fans. We believe that a happy customer is a referral and a customer for life. TMS is committed to building your brand through subservicing. Learn more today at subservicing.themoneysource.com.
0: This is Tracy Velt, Managing Editor for Real Trends. Today, you'll be listening to an exclusive interview with Pete Carroll, CoreLogic's Executive of Public Policy and Industry Relations. We're going to talk about the housing supply issues plaguing today's real estate industry and some possible solutions. So welcome, Pete.
2: Hi, Tracy. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, so um, I want to kind of get right into it. Uh, According to the National Association of Realtors, we have a housing gap of about 5.5 to 6.8 million housing units, and they call it an underbuilding gap. Um, But in one of your videos, you have a YouTube series that you're doing on this very subject. Um, You mentioned a Freddie Mac study, and that study shows a much smaller gap. Um, Regardless, it's a crisis. So tell me a little bit about how you expect this to impact housing in the years to come.
2: Yes, I appreciate it. It's always good to start by sizing the problem. And the the Freddie Mac study that we referenced, uh, which puts the undersupply of um, housing units at 4.35 million by the end of 2022, smaller number than the NARS study. But um, I I think even um, most acknowledge that with the numbers in the Freddie Mac study, that's not necessarily taking into account housing burden. Um, So when you take into account housing burden, which is defined as uh, families that spend gross income towards housing, um, that that number is even bigger and could be substantially bigger. So uh, it's all just to say that, um, you know, and, and actually to couple that with another figure, uh, CoreLogic estimates that um, the prior 10-year average of new housing starts in the U.S. has been 1.15 million units. So um I know that with the Freddie Mac study, there's an estimate that we are adding 370,000 gap units to the system, so adding to that undersupply by an additional 370,000 units every year. So whether you're taking the smaller Freddie Mac number or the larger NAR number, as you pointed out, it's still a crisis proportion. And when we look at a prior 10-year running average of new housing starts at 1.15 million We've got a long ways to go if we're going to not only stop um, the, the, the gap from growing, but start to eat into it and, and get back to a, a supply and demand equilibrium.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so you're doing a YouTube series on the U.S. housing supply and crisis and economic mobility. And in one video, you really talk about who is most impacted, and that's the economically disadvantaged so, talk to me about this. Um, this group of people, or who is most impacted by this, and um, and the impact that they're feeling.
2: Oh, absolutely. So, when we refer to uh, economically disadvantaged, so we, what we do, what we're what we're talking about here is we're looking at that Freddie Mac number of four point three five million supply, which applies to all housing. Is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, you know, whether it's uh, uh, ownership, rental, single family, multifamily, but Freddie Mac is of the view that there is a significant portion in that 4.35 million that is single family entry level starter homes, which is, you know, uh, you know, really that's, that's the American dream of home ownership. Um, And so we wanted to dig into those numbers a little bit. um, And we did. And what we found is that when we, when we try to break down what's in that, um gap in that undersupply, um, we, we have yeah, four categories within that number. Um, the e- economically disadvantaged we describe as people who earn 50% or less of area median, area median income. So 50 um, percent or less than what their neighbors earn in their neighborhood. Um, and that is, um, you know, going to be um, you know, certainly um, economic disadvantaged neighborhoods, um, tends to be multifamily rental housing, um, poor communities where there's not as much opportunity for economic mobility. Um, and what's interesting about that, we we pegged the size of that um, of that segment at 2.6 million of that 4.35 million by the end of 2020 by the end of 2022. Mm-hmm. And the challenge with that segment is that. Adding new supply will help in in some cases. I think it's there's regional differences where there might be supply and demand imbalances where adding new supply could actually have an effect on price. Right. Um, at the end of the day, I think our experience is that this is gets to that earlier point I made around housing burden that it's it's not that we don't. I mean, we it's not just that we don't have enough units. It's that even at cost, if I'm a land developer, I could, the project could be fully capitalized and I could have subsidies to maintain and operate it. And the problem is that just, just the cost to operate these rental units, the tenants don't make enough money to pay the rent and not be housing burdened. So it's really an issue at its core. And that leaves kind of three options, right? I can earn more money, um, which is you know uh, not in, you know not an easy thing to do when there's not uh necessarily opportunities for economic mobility um, there could be more subsidy applied um, to um, essentially subsidize the cost to uh, the rent subsidize the rent um, or there could be investments made to apply uh, more energy efficient materials um, or energy efficient retrogrades so that you can drive down utility costs Costs and reduce the cost to own, own and operate these um, uh, these units. And uh, if you can drive down that cost, then you can perhaps uh, have these tenants um, paying rents that are closer to um, not being housing burden. So you know the potential for a real ROI with the right investments made in alternative energy sources to drive down utility costs, or infrastructure projects that could reduce transportation costs for the people living in them.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and I want to talk um, not just rentals, but actual affordable housing is single family homes as well, because that is um, our audience. So you had talked about the housing supply gap and how it impacts different communities across the nation. So talk to me a little bit about those trends. What are what are the different impacts and and, um, you know, explain that a little bit to me.
2: Sure. So this is where we would talk. So you know, if if the economically disadvantaged, also referred to as extremely low income, very low income, right. that's right, percent AMI and below, um, we we would also segment low income and moderate income into um, two different segments. But low income being fifty percent to eighty percent of area median income, and moderate being eighty percent to one hundred twenty percent of area median income we put the gap um, between those two segments at about 1.2 million. And this is where the undersupply of, in particular, of single-family entry entry-level homes for home ownership is most acute. Um, and we see it particularly in metropolitan areas where you don't have as much um, of a high cost of land challenge. So there are many, many MSAs across the country where. Um, the cost of land is not really the issue with um, obtaining um, affordable homeownership opportunity. Um, there's many cities across the U.S. Um, I'm doing work, for example, in Memphis, Tennessee, um, where there's um, vacant and abandoned property abound in Memphis, and communities um, of low- to moderate-income uh, families um, that are have seen the inventory of, of single-family detached homes um, evaporate um, through increased demand and through um, you know, cash buyers who have purchased homes and turned them into single-family rental properties. Um, you know they're, they're going to be much better positioned to win a bid for a sale when they can come in with all cash, as opposed to a lot low to moderate-income home buyer who has to arrange for mortgage financing. It's just you know, the way the market's going to work. Um, so it's a real challenge as to how do we increase the stock of affordable home ownership units in these low to moderate-income neighborhoods. And do so in a way where we're, where we're positioning low to moderate income families to be set up for success to obtain affordable mortgage loans and be able to sustain those affordable mortgage loans. And that's where there's a um, you know, where I know uh, CoreLogic is really doing. We've got a pretty intense focus on this segment, especially.
0: Yeah, and um, and I kind of want to get into that because the, the Senate obviously passed the 1 trillion infrastructure bill on August 10th. And as a follow-up um, to that, Senate Democrats unveiled a $3.5 trillion social infrastructure framework. And that includes down payment assistance, which is wonderful, but little else to really address the challenges of housing supply or to really help low-income or minority borrowers in the housing market. So What is your opinion of that and what are some things that you think they should be doing um, to kind of what is the right course of action?
2: Yes. I mean, so, so, you know, maybe start a little bit by talking about the challenges. Um, Right. So many um, challenges with when it comes to affordable homeownership. Um, So, you know, if I were to pick on a kind of a a typical example of, of, of projects, um think of it as like as a you know, particular in this um, single-family entry-level starter home segment, right? The, the 1.2 million moderate income gap. Um, you're talking about um, uh, small to mid-sized land developers who are going to be typically not for profit, but also for-profit, um, community development corporations who are very active in specific communities within a MSA, a metropolitan statistical area, um, or a city. Um, and uh, for-profit developers who are, you know, small to mid-sized, and are, you know, very, um, you know, just either passionate, mission-driven, or um, just see the opportunity to develop housing in that segment. Um, because it's definitely um, trickier to build housing in the low to moderate income segment. You have lower price point homes where the margin of error is much smaller, right? It's just like the the, the cost of getting it wrong. And having construction costs that don't match up to your initial financial pro forma or plans, um, you know the cost of getting that wrong is very high, right? I mean, it's just you just don't have the margin of error that you do when it's a um, a higher price point home, right? Where there's bigger margins or thicker margins to to, to work with. Um, so um, you know, fundamentally, there's that challenge that it's you know the margin of error is, is smaller, so that that makes it challenging. Um, and then you've got you know a combination of macroeconomic and microeconomic um drivers to these uh challenges right so so you have um, as i mentioned low interest rates or, um uh you know it's just making it easier to obtain financing to acquire homes turn them into single-family rental you've got cash buyers that puts a strain on the inventory levels um we've um, i'm sure we've heard the terms land labor lumber right just in, in many uh in many cities, the cost of land, uh, acquiring land is going up, not in all cities, but in many. Um, so if it's a metropolitan area or a city that has expensive land, um, it's becoming increasingly not cost-effective to build single-family detached homes and even single-family attached homes, whether it's uh, row homes, townhomes, quadplexes, triplexes, that improves the unit economics because the, the term is gentle density, where you can start adding Kind of more units without having to have mid and high rise condos or apartments, um, but um, you know that you know the, the, the economics definitely become challenged by that dynamic. Where it's just if you build a multifamily apartment at whatever price point and you increase the density, you can um, improve your unit economics. Um, so just the, the, this fundamental problem of land becoming more expensive in many cities, but even where land is more abundant. Um, We've had labor shortages that make it harder to obtain the um, contract, uh, the the, the workers that you need to um, build the homes, construction workers. Um, uh, And then, of course, um, uh, lumber prices have been, there's been a lot in the news about lumber prices that have been spiking all over the place. That makes it hard to predict um, project costs when you've got labor prices, lumber prices spiking. Um, And that's generally true of many um, types of equipment and materials. Um, you know, another challenge becomes uh, building codes and zoning constraints. Um, zoning challenges are sometimes in the form of uh, the term is exclusionary zoning, right, where uh, you can have large swaths of the city that are zoned for single family detached one unit development only. And that challenges the ability to um, whether it's gentle density or multifamily um, putting in single-family attached or multi-family, um, you're inherently constrained by those zoning um, restrictions. Um, so the idea that we could loosen up some of the zoning constraints to allow different types of building to occur. Um, and then you just have the building codes themselves, which um, you know I, we come across many land developers who talk about how sometimes building codes are one size fits all where they either have um, well-intentioned requirements to mitigate, say, environmental risks or natural hazard risks, um, or um, to include materials that are um, um, of a certain level of quality and durability, Um, but um, they don't always keep pace with innovation. I I heard a a very interesting story about um, a developer, a for-profit mid-sized developer that was looking to build homes with a very cutting edge uh, form of vinyl siding that was both more durable and more energy efficient than most types of siding. Um, But because it was technically vinyl siding, it didn't conform to the building code. So it's how can we make, you know, how can we build, um, you know, building codes that are more adaptive and responsive to the actual profile of a given property and evolve with the technology innovations over time is a challenge, Um, And then the last kind of challenge I'll mention is um, that it's just a a real kind of blocking and tackling challenge, right, where um, I hear often from land developers um, operating in various cities that it could just be very time consuming on the front end of the process of building a new housing development. So, you know, a typical example would be if I wanted to build a subdivision of, say, 10 to 50 units, um, I can acquire a number of adjacent parcels, I can combine them, subdivide them. And put in you know 10 50 units single family attached attached you know whatever mix I put in to, to create these entry-level single-family starter homes Um the cycle time from my initial ideation of this concept through to actually obtaining you know building out my proposal my plans um, and then getting the necessary permits and approvals i need from the city that can be very time consuming um, it can take many, many months, it can take years, um, depending on the nature of the project. And that is an inherent limiter, right? If I'm, if I'm, you know, if I've got a long pole in the tent, which is I can only my capacity to build new units is constrained by the speed at which I can get through this um, approval process, that's going to be a natural, that's going to naturally dampen the ability to kind of scale the supply of new units, right? So this notion that we can try to um, unclog that drain, so to speak, right try to try to uh, speed up the process and reduce the cycle time for developers to get these plans through, but do it in a way that is uh, addressing what are some very legitimate concerns and why you know these why why these processes tend to slow things down in the first place. And we view that as a combination of um, better knowledge and better data at the local level and better collective action. And so what I would mean by that is, um, if smaller to mid-sized land developers have access to the tools they need, as well as cities, cities and state agencies that are focused on this challenge, you know, anything we can do to get good knowledge, data analytics models into the hands of um, cities and land developers focused on this type of development, investors and construct you know construction investors focused on this type of development. Um, we can start to move what is kind of what is traditionally more of a qualitative process for building out these plans into more of a data-driven, empirical process. And if we can couple that with um, initiatives that are what we would describe as collective action frameworks, say for example, facilitated workshops where we bring together all of the stakeholders that have an interest in the development, and that could be city department officials that that uh, oversee land use. It could be neighborhood associations that have concerns about what type of housing is being built and what they do to the community. If it includes um, city council members who share that concern, if it includes construction investors who need to feel confidence that, that if they make an investment in a project, it's going to be secure um, through the construction process, and that it's going to finish on time and on budget at a rate of return, they expect getting all these different folks around the table, and being able to look at plans that are empirically backed because the, the, the local knowledge and data has been aggregated and pulled together um by this group uh, for this group of, of stakeholders we think it go a long way to you know building consensus a kind of a consensus driven process that makes it much easier for a city to get to yes right it, it's at the end of the day it is a political process right so if you can take the if you can put empirical evidence in um, build consensus, you know, have, you, know, um, you know, increase communication, collaboration and trust among stakeholders, get to yes. Um, we think cities are very eager to approve projects and green light projects and get shovel into dirt. And if we, so if we can do that, if we can start to build and it's not very hard to do, it's, it's really, it's more just the kind of willingness and will to come together, collaborate and try to figure out what are the challenges getting in the way How do we overcome those challenges? How do we get to yes? So that we do end up getting more more projects approved quicker. And that will naturally scale the start of new housing units in a particular city. And we think that could go along well. That's more of a kind of a grassroots approach. It's one that could really, you know, it it, it kind of lays down a kind of a clear path for development. And then that kind of like ties off. Um, on this notion of subsidy that you described, right? There's there's many, many really thoughtful subsidies that have been contemplated at the federal level. There's one that I love that's targeted towards, it's called the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act. I think it's a component of the budget reconciliation that's um, been passed by the Senate, Um, but it's a tax credit uh, uh, targeted to um, this kind of single-family entry-level development challenge where if at the end of the day, under you know, if you pass certain eligibility criteria, if the um, ultimate um, revenue earned on the project is less than 35%, is within 35% of the of the all-in construction costs, soft and hard construction costs, mm-hmm. uh, you, can, you can get a tax credit that can be liquidated that can cover that difference that includes a, a rate of return that's that's reasonable and approved by the, the state agency that oversees the program. So it's just some very innovative tax credits and other subsidies at the federal level that are kind of the, that really provide the ability to put the to to, uh, to really kind of turbocharge this development. So it's, it's just kind of so really you know in summary, it's you've got these challenges that are inherent around the costs, um, which means low margin of error. Um, you know you need to kind of create these frameworks at the local level, repeatable frameworks that make it efficient to get a pro, uh, projects greenlit and passed, and get kind of trust built at the local level. If you succeed in that, then there's a real opportunity for subsidy to turbocharge that development and just draw more people to the table to engage in this activity.
0: Yeah, and I, I feel like that's part of of what's missing from a lot of these bills is is the actual we're we're providing some some help for the actual home buyers, but we're we're not providing a lot of help for the developers. Um, you know, and and and. We're not reducing regulations, and in some cases, that's a good thing. In other cases, it's it's not such a good thing. So I feel like the barriers are just pretty great. Um, I love the idea of the grassroots, but if you can't get over the the regulation barriers, how can that work? And and you know more about this than me, so.
2: Well, so you know, it really goes back to that point around knowledge and data. Right. So it's you know, a big emphasis on a lot. So back to this project we've been working on in Memphis, this pilot we're doing. It begins with um, you know CoreLogic is um, one of the largest providers of single family housing ecosystem data. So uh, from the real estate, through mortgage lending, through insurance, we, we, we really just have the gamut of, of data and analytics models. And you know what we found is that when, when we pull many of our data assets together, we can produce a tremendous amount of insight on um, you know, answering questions such as which you know neighborhoods, like so for example, census block groups, which na- you know, census block groups or neighborhoods uh, represent the best opportunity for development. Um, you know, where you know if you target your investments, you could really um, you know there, first of all the demand is there, and you know there's good insight and intelligence into what um, affordable price points look like for home ownership in those neighborhoods. But then there's also the evidence and models to suggest that it's a tipping point opportunity, right? Where the kind of trends and models suggest that home prices will increase over time, crime will decrease over time, employment will increase over time with some incremental investment in those communities such as um, um, quality, affordable housing opportunity. Um, so this really gets into community development where you know strategic investments in housing in and of itself, could produce economic stimulus that helps tip a community into a kind of more virtuous economic cycle. So, you know, tools that range from that to being able to identify land that's available for purchase, um, to tools that can help really kind of quickly model out and, and in an optimal way through machine learning or other techniques, um, model out housing designs that are consistent with what's already in the community, but using materials that conform to building codes. Um, and are more cost efficient so that you can reduce the risk of this uh, gap between the costs and the revenues, right? So you can actually end up with housing designs that are configured to potentially even be sold at market rate um, or or with minimal subsidy or optimized minimal subsidy. Um, you know, so just to point, you know, the right data and infrastructure, um, you know, it'll never be a panacea. There will always be qualitative elements to this, but... With the right focus on kind of filling out a local, kind of a a, kind of a very local neighborhood property-driven set of knowledge and data, um, just goes a long way to building out credible plans that a kind of work around, like I like I'll just term work around regulations or work with them. That that, you know, if you can do it efficiently, you can figure out how can I get to a design that works, right? That that meets all these constraints. If you do them as constraints, right? I've got building codes I have. I've got, you know, uh only certain types of home styles I can work with, otherwise neighborhood associations might um not be appreciative, right? Like you, you gotta you understand those constraints and, and and technology and data can help you work around them. And that can get a lot of activity going in and of itself and 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 take a lot of concerns off the table quickly. When you start and what I'll say is when when you start there, when you start with let's just we don't need to change everything immediately. Let's mm-hmm. start by Place the mechanisms that let us just build with what we have, right? Just 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 have the ability to efficiently in an empirically driven way design homes that are that work around or work within the constraints that are there today. What's fabulous about that is if you're successful getting this kind of collaborative framework together, this collective action framework together, all sorts of insights are produced. Well, hey, you know, the building codes are not. Don't, don't include this type of vinyl siding. Why not? Like, we've demonstrated that it's clearly a, you know, attractive siding that's more cost-effective. It's got all the benefits. Why wouldn't we update it? City might do that, right? I mean, if, you know, if the right evidence is there, they might do it, especially if it's it's empirically demonstrated to make, be the difference maker between a project that economically is not feasible or feasible, right? So, it, it, you know, it, I think there's a very palpable view amongst the folks that we're working with in Memphis, anyway just even really the act of getting everybody around a table is kind of and, and, in a, and in a live fashion where we're talking about a real development proposal um, has the um, uh, you know potential to unveil all sorts of insights. It won't it won't it won't eliminate all regulatory concerns overnight. But if it can start to just build consensus around some of the you know, um, high ticket items, right? the ones that are, are the biggest barriers to development and build a consensus and a common view around it, not only are we getting to yes on projects and creating a mechanism to do that, we're also identifying insights that help cities make perhaps better decisions, and then, and likewise they can have access to these types of tools and data to to validate that and make up their own minds and make their own decisions. So, you know it's back to this notion of creating a virtuous cycle at that grassroots level. Don't happen immediately, but can happen over time, um, and, and not a lot of time, right? It just it's, it'll just it'll start to kind of build on itself and grow exponentially if that trust is there.
0: Yeah. And I feel like it, it needs to happen more quickly than not. If you really want people to take advantage of down payment assistance and any of the programs that they have for low income and minority borrowers, they, they really need to have properties to buy. <laughs> um, so if, if they're, they're not able to get them built in a, in a you know, good amount of time, then that even makes the crisis even worse.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, I mean, it starts with we got to get more units into the system, but there's a clear intersection between these supply issues and demand issues, right? I mean, it's you know, getting units into the system. Um, a land developer needs to arrange construction financing. Construction financing is going to feel a lot more competent making it an investment in, in what is objectively a higher risk investment, um, if they feel like there is clarity around not only the city's commitment to the project, um, but um, mortgage lenders at the table who have indicated they've got all the tools necessary to provide the affordable mortgage loan programs uh, needed for um, homeowners to become homeowners, or you know, for the low moderate income families to become homeowners. Yeah. And this is a prime example of how you can kind of create that, that increased collaboration and trust that creates that virtuous cycle that gets things moving in the right direction
0: with this stuff. Yeah, and I love that. Um, My last question is just what can real estate brokerage leaders um, do to be a part of the solution?
2: There's so much they can do. So much. So I would just say, so you know, to the extent, uh, you know, uh, to the certainly making your voice heard through your uh, trade associations in Washington, DC for subsidies and other programs that are designed to help as we talked about. Um. This is a moment in time where there's going to be uh, many programs designed to help um, stimulate new supply with land developers, home builders, um, to provide um, assistance to um, uh, mortgage lending for home ownership um, for borrowers. Um, an unprecedented moment in time. So, getting active on that. But then, I would also say this kind of grassroots notion. You know, where 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 you see any collaboration happening to try to increase the understanding and knowledge of what's going on at the local level. Um, It's been my experience that real estate brokers are just tremendously effective in this regard. I mean, they know their communities like the back of their hand. Um, They have access to, you know, they have access to the MLS. They have um, just so much knowledge that they can bring to the table um, to help kind of fill out that that local empirical data sets. Um, that is really the kind of the, the underpinning, you know, it's like the, 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 nucleus that helps form this, uh, this level of collaboration and trust building. Um, and I've seen real estate brokerage leaders, uh, play a tremendous role in some of these collective action initiatives, absolutely huge. And, um, I just would really encourage them to engage in, in any of these, um, collaborative efforts they see happening in their community because they can pay dividends.
0: Yeah, well, great. Well, thank you so much, Pete, for for joining the Real Trending podcast today. We appreciate your insight, and um, you know, I am looking forward to seeing seeing some of the solutions come to fruition.
2: Me too. I appreciate you taking the time to have me on. Thank you.
1: On September 27th and 28th at the Omni Hotel in Frisco, Texas, HousingWire will host its second annual event, which will be in person for the first time. HousingWire Annual offers each guest the opportunity to gather with top industry professionals for exclusive content, technology demonstrations, and unbeatable networking. Find out more by going to the Events tab on the HousingWire site. You won't want to miss out on this event, so register by September 20th. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. I hope you have a great afternoon. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on all the hottest stories crossing our news desk daily. The podcast is now available wherever you like to listen. Make sure to tune in tomorrow.